Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by several leaders from the world of cyber to discuss the challenges of being a CISO. Before we dive into the topic in a bit more detail, I'd like to work around the room with some introductions. Jens, would you like to kick us off? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Jens Porup. Some people call me JM, JM Porup. I'm the CISO of Ava Labs, a, uh, a blockchain company based in New York City. And I've been in and out of cybersecurity for about 20 years. Thank you. Alexander? Yes. Uh, greetings, everyone. Alexander Zedinev. I am Group CISO at IFCO uh, Systems. IFCO is an enabler of uh, food supply chains across the globe. Whenever you do grocery shopping, check out the boxes, the plastic crates from fruits and veggies that they come most likely from IFCO boxes. I'm pleased to be here. I'm in IT and information security, yeah, also for a little over 20 years. I'm currently the interim CISO for Knopf. Uh, Knopf is one of the leading gypsum products provider across Europe. Um, yeah, I've uh, got similar experience as other people on the call, around 20 to 25 years in IT. Um, last 11 years, completely focused on cybersecurity. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. I'm Linus, CISO for Software AG. We are a B2B company um, ensuring digitalization, integration, um, and, and basically at home in the tech sector. I have a vast information security experience for regulated sectors such as financial services or before I joined Software AG for a huge um, critical infrastructure or essential services uh, corporation. So um, if you would uh, see those CISOs from a technical point of view or from a regulatory point of view, I would put myself somewhere in the middle with a nudge to the more regulatory and legal side. Excellent. And finally, Apurba. Thanks, Rob. Hello, everyone. This is Apurba. Uh, I am the head of security operations in Domakava. We are into physical access control systems. So the best example is go to the Berlin airport and you see those access control system and the locked gates. So if we are not doing security internally, better those gates won't work. So yeah. My responsibility is to take care of the security operations center, internal and external, identity and access management and a part of security governance and risk management. Uh, overall, 17 years and hands-on on security topics right from when it was not so popular or known. So I started a really hands-on technical experience working in tech support role in India. And I gradually moved my way ahead. And now I am in this position and looking ahead for going into a CISO role. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, that's great. So uh, we'll obviously move on to the topic. So you've all prepared a question or subtopic around the challenges of being a CISO. Um, so I'll work around the room asking you each of you to pose your question, your reasons behind it. Uh, each of you will uh, give the opportunity to um, give your take on the situation. And um, let's get started. So uh, we'll start with Jens. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that I deal with is the tension between uh, compliance and regulatory risk and real security risk. And I'm in the, the somewhat unusual position in, in that my security risk dramatically exceeds my regulatory risk. I secure billions of dollars of cryptocurrency. If North Korea steals all of my cryptocurrency and I go bankrupt, I don't really care about regulatory fines because guess what? I'm already bankrupt. So, uh, and I think this really varies from company to company. And I'd be curious to hear others' thoughts on how you deal with the tension between what the lawyers are telling you and then what you, what your real security risks actually are. Sense. Okay, we'll come to you first. 
Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, I can, I, I cannot, uh, I cannot say I, I fully relate to that that example based on the industry that I work in. So, so the industry that we have is manufacturing. So, we are very light on the regulatory. So the, the other way I can relate to that um, issue is that most of our risk sits in the security space. So even though we don't have any regulatory compliance, um, we, we, we do have the security risk. And then finding that balance is, is hard because while we don't get regulated by certain bodies, we do get challenged by the data privacy side. So it is one way or the other, you need to have a minimal threshold there. The other thing we aspire to is to have accreditations. So if we are going for something like TSEX, they, they also demand a certain level of minimum requirements. So yeah, so for us, maybe the, the answer might be slightly easier that as long as we, we meet those minimum thresholds, we, we get by very well in, in our industry. Um, I, would, I would not take much on, on this topic, to be honest, because I think other people might have more to add here than me. That's good. Viva, to you. Well, to be honest, uh, yeah. Pretty much inclined to what Shaquille said. For me, from my perspective, what I see is the compliance risk versus security risk. I mean, especially when you are looking from a certification or an audit perspective, both are not so far apart. Both are pretty much hand in hand in my perspective. Reason being, if you are if you are going for a compliance risk audit, somehow the recent situations and audit criteria have shown that they also incorporate parts of security in it, you know, very prominently. So yeah, for me, both goes more hand in hand for at least where I have seen that there is a compliance risk in comparison to a cyber security risk. And on top, management focus on both is also has been pretty much the same. The senior leadership look at compliance risk as severe as they will look at a cybersecurity risk, at least from the industry and the, and the uh, impacts that we have seen in the past. So yeah. I personally don't see it very differently, honestly. Yeah. Another yeah, welcome to you next. Yeah, thanks. I wish I had your problem, Jens, yeah? and I believe um, many CISOs do because it's awesome that you have a direct link from your security risk to the business uh, that you are doing. And to be honest, in my experience, I mean, who cares um, about regulatory? Don't get me wrong. Yeah, of course, it's it's very important. But if that's the only reason to do security, to get a check in the box, because some regulatory requirement says you need to have, what do I know, an SOC or so, yeah, that's um, a very weak business case i think yeah of course you circumvent the fines and you look great if you do business with other customers that have those long lists of requirements they also want to see fulfilled in their supply chain but um uh, this is awesome to say hey look we have those crypto wallets this is how i'm going to protect them this is the cost that we'll have but look at this we save billions or we at least can avoid losing billions of euros of our customers. And um, um, I think trust is a very important uh, currency in your in your line of work, um, uh, as it is in ours, as we do critical systems for our customers. And sometimes I have a lot of discussions with our customers who say, um, we are a regulated entity, so all our supply chain partners also need to um, comply to all those regulations. So. We have no choice but to be compliant to everything. And the discuss discussions are really in Excel files. Yeah, okay, now we are at line 147. Do you comply to this? Yes, we do. And this adds no security. This is just a lot of work. Um, and sometimes it's really difficult to find the value in there, what we do for the company and, and how that makes us better. So I actually really like 
the problem that you have. And I wish it was more focused on on this, to be honest. Thanks, And uh, finally, come to you, Alexander. Yes, thank you. So, uh, Jens, I actually think it, it's not one versus another. I see this, uh, b- both of them, as different facets of enterprise risk. So, ultimately, it is business's decision what they choose to comply with or ignore, right? It can be internal regulations, policy standards. It can be uh, regional, country-specific, or global regulations. So, um, I would instead approach it for, and whenever we, we look at these topics, we approach it as sort of from a pure risk perspective. Is there a risk associated with being non-compliant with certain provisions? There is. Then comes in risk assessment part, and then there comes a decision uh, from, from a risk owner, what do we do about it? And sometimes the answer is we accept it for a period or indefinitely because we understand the, the fines non-compliance fines might be less than actually remediation or risk avoidance. So um, I I would call to not differentiate or saying this versus that or user experience versus security, compliance versus cyber. Uh, it's actually all of them together, enterprise risk, ultimately company's ability to earn money um, and continue operating. And Jens, any final thoughts you want to add to that? No, I mean, I, I I think Alexander summed it up well. It really comes down to how much risk the business can tolerate. Uh, I think one complicating factor is that businesses deeply understand legal risk because executives tend to be business people and lawyers. But how many business executives really understand cyber risk when they choose to accept it? I don't know. Uh, it depends on your executive team. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, Alexander? Yeah, that, that's that's one of my hot buttons. The I think the role of a CISO is actually translate the uh, cyber vulnerabilities and opportunities into business language. So whenever speaking to your C-level, your board, saying we are at risk of losing X millions or clients relationship or what have you, or getting a non-compliance, the flag of non-compliance, which then can lead to and then people ask why, and then you can go into cyber. But the role of a CISO and all IT leaders, actually, is to explain the technical mumbo-jumbo into plain uh, business language. Yeah, 100%. Skin, your hand up? Yeah, I would just like to kind of, it, it will become an echo of what Alexander said, that we what we are doing at Knopf, we are challenging the organization outside cyber to actually go and establish an enterprise risk management uh, system. So they are looking towards us to manage the entire risk. And then we are now becoming more and more clear during the conversations that, yes, we can, maybe the IT part can take care of the IT risk and cyber can take care of up to the level of information security risk. But all that needs to work within an organizational framework. And I think why that is important, because the organizational framework will define a risk appetite. And that risk appetite will be a very key uh, instrument for you to decide which risk to focus on. And if, if you have a bigger security risk, then that is again driven by the risk appetite. So yeah, come come regulatory time, even though they are quite lightweight, you would be able to demonstrate that what you did was was doing right by the business and and finding that balance which which takes that regulatory appetite and then also your your overall security risk appetite. Thanks, Gil. Thanks, Gil. Um, okay. And then we'll, uh, we'll stay with you, Gil, for your question. Uh, do you want to read your question to the table? So that, that would be my, myself then? Yes, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yes, so I I put that question out because we we are currently dealing with it. So the question is, can MDR providers solve the problem of insufficient resources for CISOs? So I think um, all of us can can agree that we have a resource shortage, and and the resource shortage become more and more apparent as you go towards more operational tasks. So it is about governance sources. We find it hard for governance people to to come and join our team, but more so that even if we get on the security operation side, we find the people very hard, but then it is harder to retain them. So one of the areas that we are currently looking at, can we find the right balance between what we have in-house and what we have out-house, uh, what we outsource to the other providers? So considering the size of the company, we are around 40,000 people strong, so it's a, it's a decent size of business. We want to have an internal SOC. But then we we struggle a lot with the L1. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Alexander <laughs> nodding. Yeah. So those are the kind of interesting conversations we are having. And, and we're trying to find a balance where we have L1s. Can we can we get an MDR provider in? They bring in their L1 resources, their technology set, and then we keep L2 and L3 operations within the organization. And then there, there are services out there when they try to offer all kinds of flavors there. Uh, so in, in our point of view, that might be workable, but I just wanted to pose that that question that are we thinking on the same line? Is, is that where the industry is heading eventually? And what is the thought by the panel? Thanks, Gil. Alexander, we'll come to you. Yes. So um, I, I would say that for a company about 40,000, 50,000 people, tens of thousands of people, um, it still might not make sense. And again, it very depends on the industry, on your specific risk profile, et cetera, et cetera. But in, kind of, in general, um, exactly as you said, extremely difficult to find and retain level one people. And that that is a full-time job uh, in itself. So uh, my take is uh, buy versus build. Absolutely. Whenever you can outsource, outsource. No MDR provider will be able to replace in-house incident responders or C-shirt, however you call it. So at some point in time, there will be a need for your internal staff to come in and start uh, verifying triage and then actually uh, taking in the, the taking on the response activities. Um, the more you can outsource to a third party the, of the initial triaging, the better it is from my perspective. So answering your question, can MDR provider solve insufficiency of resources for incident re incident responders space uh, to an extent, but approach with extreme caution. I would really think three times before um, uh, embarking on a journey of building a, a fully in-house SOC. Very, very difficult. Um, and in, in most cases, unless you're in special branches of business, uh, not really justified. Yes, so Shakil, you have actually picked up a pain topic that I am dealing with, just pretty much the everyday business. So yeah, security operations and the blend of what should be the sourcing strategy. I think that is a part and parcel for a small organization, big organization, especially where you have a focus on security. Yeah, My personal take is that we should have the right blend. We should not look for insourcing certain elements and outsourcing certain elements. Rather, we should weigh it from the cost factor perspective as well, from the skill set perspective as well. We all know if you go to an MDR render, they somehow have a 
more attractive market to bring in the level one, level two kind of analysts, you know, no matter what they offer to those analysts and those professionals, but there is a more attractive magnet there sitting with these MSSPs and MDR vendors where they get a yeah, good stack and pool of L1, L2 resources. So my strategy on how you should or how we should approach the security operations setup or security operations center setup is have the blend of level one L2 outsourced to a third party vendor that could be an MDR, that could be even a dedicated managed service who is working on your tools that you offer and want to choose and have the level four, level five, really those guys who are sitting internally in the team are and are able to validate the analysis and connect the dots and resolve incidents. Yeah. But there's a big, of course, tarmac there that in order to have this setup successfully lead to a uh, regular operations, you also need to look at other aspects in the organization, which we sometimes tend to ignore, like CMDB data. I mean, if that is not there, no matter you have internal or external levels working, it will not work out the way you expect it to be. Yeah? Second, what is the approach from management perspective? How do you operate on incidents? What is the incident handling life cycle process within the organization? So, you know, these bits and pieces, even though are five-sided, I think they are very much needed to basically derive what should be a sourcing strategy on security operations. Yeah, so that's what I'm experiencing. That's my almost everyday talk with my boss and my peers to understand what is the best blend of L1, L2, and L5 analysts working externally with uh, external partners. Yeah. So, yeah. Enzo, come to you. Sorry, I was clearing my throat. I guess that was me. Uh, look, I mean, I, I, I've dealt with multiple MDR providers, and my experience is that an MDR provider has to focus on the, you know, the core 50 to 80 percent problem of, of their majority of customers. And I have very unique edge case security requirements. Even if you don't have particular edge case security requirements, there's always going to be that thing that you do your MDR provider just does not have ingestion on. So MDR can save you money if you're super vanilla, super ordinary, super normal, uh, or it can cover the normal parts of your abnormal business, but it's not going to, you're not going to get, you know, you're going to get cheap eyes on glass, but your glass is only going to be half full to mix metaphors. You're not going to see everything. So it really depends upon what your security budget is and what management has approved, you know, on the hiring front, the bottom line is hiring and retaining security people is really expensive. And if you want to hire them and retain them, you have to pay them a globally competitive market rate. And if management does not want to do that, which is their decision to make, then they have to understand the risk trade-offs involved in not spending the money. And uh, Linus, we'll come to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, going last has certainly the advantage that everything has already been said. Um, mm -hmm. But um, uh, Shaquille, you were asking what's what's the market standard, and I believe that what you described is actually it. Yeah, to to try to outsource those presumably easy and and more or less boring tasks of first level uh, responding. Um, on the other hand, 
the question that I would always ask myself, why are we doing all of this? And again, if it's a compliance exercise, just to, to check the box, yes, we have a SOC um, or, or MDR, um, whatever, then, then I would totally uh, do that. But the amount of work to align with those guys to make sure that in the long term, um, they adjust also to your, as, as Jens was saying, to your organization, to your business. Um, and there is so much, there is not much um, retention from my experience. There is a different responder every day, um, and that is really a hassle to get in line. Still, of course, it's the most cost-efficient solution. But um, the, the the change of perspective, and I think um, you guys have said it already in, in different words, is that um, I truly believe that people that work for my company, especially if it's a, a tens of thousands people industry, there is usually some kind of pride to work for the company. There is buy-in of our employees and they know their systems, their IT environment by heart. Yeah, And they can tell just from the coming of the of the uh, fans in the systems which id the system has no cmdb needed i know that is our sap server and it's behaving strangely even though i don't see an alert yeah and um, i think there's actually research that supports that the more um, or that those socs or those responders are more efficient because they just tend to 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 feel that something is not right because they know their environment for years and and just um, have this intuition on top of the just the runbook following through okay alert one i need to go here and inform that person yeah um, um would i totally or 100% internalize all of this? Probably not. Yeah, But again, coming back to the beginning, the question I would always ask myself, what are we expecting also from the provider and how can we make it work? And also don't forget how much work it is to get aligned and also that needs resources on, on, on my side, on your side, um, to make sure that so that the services are actually interlinked as much as possible. Yeah, no, it, it's been quite helpful. Uh, the the other thing which, which we are discussing uh, with the providers that is there a model in place where they build it, they run it for two, three years, and then we eventually bring that in. So for us, it might be a way to cover those points raised by, by the team, and especially you, Linus, in the end, when you summarize all of that, that we, we need to then build that capability where we can just listen to something and we can feel things happening before they are actually happening or be able to build that big picture. And I think a very key point was this, that we outsource it, thinking that the MDR provider will have continuity, but they also suffer with the high churn rate. So the, the, the issue of continuity still stays. It just may be the risk. Maybe the commercialist kind of goes away, but the, the actual organization they still stays with us. So the, 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 there must be some work that needs to be done to actually quantify that risk. So thank, thank you very much, guys. It's been super helpful. Thank you. Okay, and Linus, we'll come to you next for your question, please. My question is a universal one that every CISO is facing, I believe, and that is um, how to get from security awareness for letting our people know how to behave and not to behave to an actual um, change in culture. Yeah, You know, culture is what people are doing when no one's looking. So um, what do we need to do to sustainably change their behavior? So um, my personal experience is we can do what we want uh, or, or all we want. Yeah, we have those web-based trainings, of course, everybody has. We have live hacking sessions and can train every employee. And we've done that in a, in a again, a company with multiple thousands of people. Everybody was invited to a live hacking just to see in their terms or in their workstation what could happen. Um, we do phishing exercise. I, I guess everything that you guys are doing as well. 
And of course, we measure also, we have KPIs for awareness. And after those initiatives, life hacking sessions, the numbers look great. They go down and um, we see, wow, there is a great security awareness. That's great. Uh, if you repeat the measurement four weeks later, you see, okay, we're back at, at normal. Yeah? And um, I would be really interested in, in your guys' opinion or your experiences um, with maybe approaches that have a more sustainable effect um, or um, anything uh, that you feel might, might lead to more of a culture change than just short-term improvement um, of, of security behavior. Good question. Pippa, come to you. Yes, still, still trying to think the optimal way. So from what I have seen, again, this is not normal, Lina, so maybe we would not have even evidence where people follow and they have a success rate there. But I've seen and I was reading some some CISO briefing and online, and there is this company which is headquartered in Germany, not disclosing the name, but... Uh, this the Caesar has a has a very good approach where he says that the awareness part is not done and done. You have to emphasize on being continuously on it. Yeah. Therefore, the CISO or the ISMS or the security program that he's leading, he basically constitutes that program with all the leads from the business, meaning security is not just run from the ISMS organization. It is actually a part and parcel for each and every business that is working in that organization. So right from their lead to their director levels are involved in the security program. Therefore, they have an obligation that they are bringing the security-related mindset, the culture, the awareness right from top down, and they are bringing it to those operational teams, those those guys who are in the fields, those guys who are working on a manufacturing unit and inculcating security because it's also their objective for that particular department, yeah? So I I mean, it's a very broad question and trust me, I think most of us face this, but every time we want to think on it and derive a roadmap, we fail, right? Because it never works on a concrete way. But I'm very intrigued to try that setup and see how it is incorporated in an organization. Uh, for organizations who are not so security aware, take the manufacturing form. I mean, yeah, people are IT savvy, but they are not necessarily security savvy. Sometimes the continuous training and awareness and phishing campaigns are useful. I mean, in my company, people are much more aware and much more careful to click on a link Rather, they will take the chance of reporting those emails as potential phishing than take the risk of clicking it, yeah? But this might not apply in many other industry types. So, yeah, is the right mix we have to find. But honestly, I have not yet realized or spoken to anybody who has achieved a success on keeping the awareness on to an optimal level, yeah? Thanks, Prima. Alexander, welcome to you. Yes. So you, you asked the million dollar question, probably the billion dollar question, right? So if, if we would know how to solve it, if there would have been a recipe, then the silver bullet, then it would probably be worth billions of dollars. So I, I don't have an answer. What I can share is what I've seen working and maybe what, what's not working, what should be done differently. Um, it's carrot and stick. And arguably, most organizations are falling more to the stick, scaring people, whatever, introducing um, some some penalties for for not being compliant or clicking a phishing in phishing link. Most advanced organizations I've seen they they actually also have the part of their awareness campaigns that calls out to intrinsic motivation, people knowing that it is the right, what what, are, what is the right thing to do, and changing culture is 
hard, and it doesn't change because we issued a, we, a policy, or there was a town hall where CEO said that it is very important. It helps, but it, it is not. It's not it. It takes months and years if your company is more than a couple dozen people to change the mindset to make sure people at least remember there that there is security and that they need to think about the embed uh, thinking about security in their day-to-day business processes i've seen it done quite successfully in banks where there's everything from gamification to hacking life hacking session to everything uh, very important to think about your age groups because what what absolutely resonates with folks under 20 is disgusted by uh, colleagues that are 50 plus, 60 plus. It literally is. It's like there's very different types of campaigns that are required. Um, So involvement, making it fun, continuous messaging, very important. Continuous messaging from uh, all all across, from from the CISO, from the C-level, from the board saying, yes, this is important. Yes, we want you to do this. And yes, whenever you start something, there is an overhead. But uh, a job of a CISO, as I see it, is to explain that this additional overhead in the beginning is is way, way less. So it's way, way cheaper to plan in security, like plan in quality, than bolt it on afterwards. That's the, 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 These are the initial thoughts on what can be done on the very difficult topic, very difficult one. Thanks, Alexander. The answer comes to you. Yeah, I mean, I've tried all the things we discussed as well, and uh, despair is my general uh, reaction. Um, I, I would say, look, it's important to take things in context. You know, we're not talking, you know, security is not binary. We're talking about managing risk. We're never going to get perfect security culture. We're never going to get perfect anything. Uh, so can we move the needle using security awareness and all the things we discussed? Yes. Uh, will it make a little bit of difference? Yes, but it has to be combined with, you know, uh, good MDM and EDR on employee devices, having eyes on glass, looking at that telemetry, you know, a zero trust architecture where a DevOps engineer is accessing the cloud, you know, we're, we're authenticating those laptops and devices in real time. You know, we, we have to assume that, I mean, here's, here's the thing. Everybody, everybody makes a mistake eventually. You know, links were made to be clicked on. That was kind of the whole idea. So saying, oh, no, you clicked on a link. Well, I I mean, the bus was there. I rode the bus. I I mean, you know, like, how is that bad? Do you know what I mean? So I I feel like we have to take things in context and zoom out. Is security awareness part of the overall picture? Sure. But we can get past the despair by saying, well, we have many compensating controls. EDR, MDR, decent monitoring, telemetry, eyes on glass, zero trust architecture, and taken as part of the whole strategy, then we can, you know, keep it, we can still live with the unsatisfying nature of our success there. Thanks, Jens. Shaquille, come to you last. Yeah, I think um, a lot has been said on on the technical side of things. I would like to address that briefly and then open up to more of an organizational piece as well, because for me, um, the the training and awareness regarding security it it should transcend beyond uh, the the technology that we use. So the the controls that we have in place is is fine. They will work, and then I really like it. Uh, yes, that yes we we make them aware. Don't click a link, but the the controls should work. So the 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 the, the email gateways and then all the security controls should should provide that posture. But then we need to transcend that into the organizational culture of information security, not 
leaving confidential items on on your desk and uh, the reason i mentioned that because we are taking we are we are not even taking it we are thinking of taking that approach over to our blue collar employees so we find it very hard to say okay guys you have to be tech savvy because all they do they use email uh, to to track shipments every now and then right so we are trying to link that conversation with not just cybersecurity but to safety and we are saying that look we are becoming more digitized on the plant if you don't look after cyber you can't have that board up there saying this is a a safe plant to work at for x amount of days so we are trying to link that conversation whether we will be successful or not we only time will tell right but but we are changing that conversation from security to towards safety in plants within the organization yes we we are but going to do sat uh, the 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 security awareness training for sure but we are also maybe a crude way we are also trying to enforce a stick because we have seen that gamification other approaches they only work to an extent so what we are thinking of now is that maybe if you fail the training or if you click a link when it was too obvious right depending on the level of difficulty we might be sending notifications out uh we might be thinking of saying okay guys if you are an, a repeat offender in two or three times in a row then then you have to have a conversation with your manager so where where that leads us we will see some some pushback on that obviously but these are a couple of ideas we are thinking of enforcing and and especially now because uh, because of the changing culture at our, our organization we got um, compromised just last year um we 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 kind of find ourselves to have that mandate but obviously it might work for our organization just because of the scenario that we are still coming out it may not be an approach that other organizations can enforce so thanks you any final points on that well thank you everybody and and i love these exchanges just to see we all have the same problems and i'm i'm not alone and and for that uh, these are very great great discussions um and i totally agree yeah and we can't ask our employees to cover for the shortcomings that our it environment has if clicking a link can lead to the full company being encrypted probably we need to invest more in in um protection measures yeah this, that shouldn't happen and we can't ask i guess and especially guys in the in the blue collar world who know about that yeah on the other hand there are things that are different and difficult to control our i don't know m&a guys talking on the airport about the next uh, merger they are planning for the company um that is really difficult of course we could based on their gps position just block their phone so they are no longer able to call on the airport but uh, they might just use the different one so um um nonetheless i took some some ideas here from the call and um it's again good to know that we all have the same issues and slightly different approaches really cool stuff okay people we'll come to you next for your question please sure so yeah um my question again has been experienced this experiencing this quite often the objective is to ensure that the CISO voice is heard or the security voice is heard hence my question is out of your experience where do you guys see see the CISO placement more relevant more useful more out of conflict in the past one example that i have been in a certain organization where we had a split between the product security and the infrastructure security side that was itself first red flag that shouldn't be there in a in a security organization and in a security setup and then these two streams were actually reporting to two different c levels yeah so one was under the cto other one in the cio and then 
we really had challenges, evident challenges to achieve a project goal, achieve security awareness, achieve risk management to an optimal level. Hence, yeah, this is really an experience that I would want to hear from you guys and see um, what you guys have to propose on a setup, an ideal setup. Super. Linus, come to you. Thank you. I think that's also one of the most asked questions on all the, the events and venues um, that I attend. And for me personally, I th the answer is the CISO should report to whom he wants yeah, and feels most comfortable. I've done both. I've been in IT environments reporting to CIOs. I have been reporting to CEOs. I have been reporting to COOs and CHROs. Um, and um, what I love being a direct board report is just to be completely responsible for my own thing. And, and, um, and of course, if you talk to people in the organization before you say the first word and they see in the org chart, wow, um, that lady or that, that gentleman is, is someone important. I better listen as opposed to don't, where, where is the, ah, somewhere in IT. Okay. We're talking about IT. And that's, I think the biggest downside of being in an IT organization. That shows me that the company has not yet fully embraced the concept of cyber risk is a business risk. It's obviously seen as something that can be solved within IT. And of course, I mean, let's face it, yeah, to protect yourself against ransomware, I think the verdict is 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 there. That is, get the basics done. And you said it before, yeah, have a CMDB, have your patching processes and your response processes in line and so on. But um, I think we should be further than that at, at this stage in time and have these discussions with the top level management and senior management. What is it you do? Is, uh, what, what could go wrong? Yeah, and and um, only at the second or third stage, this involves a technical thing. I mean, do you know um, or does your company know how secure your uh, treasury department is? Yeah, probably nobody does that because they don't know what those guys are doing from, from an IT side. Yeah, maybe they know the systems, but how do they access their, their banks, uh, their bank accounts? Is there one account for everybody? Do they have two-factor authentication? Uh, do they do this from their home computers? Those are very distinct and particular things that usually just just not get regarded because um, um, if you're reporting from inside IT, uh, you tend to focus more on the on the NIST uh, framework or whatever um, um, compliance framework you're you're doing, and it's really difficult to break out of this. And I know a lot of CISOs that report to a CIO that say I need to report to the board, but um, on the other hand, they are not willing to adopt to a, a business lingo lifestyle and just forget to talk about vulnerabilities and listen, uh, connect people, understand the business from sales, marketing, production, everything. Basically, you need to be a CEO 2.0 um, and then uh, connect the dots. Um, but if you want to do that and if you can pull it off and be the translator between IT engineering management board, I think um, that's the um, or that's certainly what I personally like better. Um, and that's why my opinion is the CISO should not uh, report to a CIO. Yes, we come to you. Yeah, no, I, I would tend to strongly agree with that. I, I think it, it, if we look at other cognates in terms of risk management, there's really three risk managers in the organization, every organization. There's the general counsel who manages legal and regulatory risk. There's the CFO who manages financial and macroeconomic risk. And there's the CISO, a brand new role in the last 10, 20 years, who manages cyber risk. 
And for me, a mature organization should be treating those three executive risk manager roles in roughly the same way because they all pose near existential risk to the business. Bad financial deal, you're bankrupt. You, you broke the law, you're bankrupt. You didn't take care of cyber. Seriously, like people can die, you can go bankrupt depending on the business. Now, I, I, I have the fortune right now of working for a software development organization. Our primary product is software. So we're a very technical, top-heavy organization. CEO himself, 20 years, professor of computer science at Ivy League University. So I am currently fortunate that I can speak geek to my CEO and the little translation is required. But no, I, I think the big picture takeaway for most organizations, especially the SEC has just published guidance in the last two months, driving the need for Fortune 500 listed companies to have greater and greater executive cybersecurity leadership. And that's going to drive the cyber role, the CISO role up higher and higher because companies that don't are going to find themselves on the wrong side of major regulators like the SEC. Makes sense. Alexander, what do you? Yeah, so um, I, I agree with co what colleagues have said. I, I put it, I would put it in perspective. So for me, the reporting line is ultimately a function of enterprise's maturity. So if role of a CISO is being in charge of technical controls, e.g. the firewall guy, then it does not make sense to link CISO under CEO, chief risk officer, whoever. As company matures, and sometimes um, what I observe is my, my colleagues in, on the market, they don't understand that some companies don't need to mature too far. Like, oh my God, we want to build a spaceship and it will be the best risk organization ever. Whereas the business says, okay, can you make sure we're not ransomware? And if, if you do, we're cool. We, like, that's it. So as organization matures, the uh, the reporting line of a CISO makes less and less sense to be in the IT organization, more and more outside of IT organization. However, if you place head of firewalls under the CEO, they they they, they will not find a common language. They they would not know what to talk about. So uh, a role of a CISO, I think that it's one of the very noble challenges, is to mature your role towards the state when CIO says, you know, half of the conversations you're having, they, have, they do not involve me. I don't know what you're talking about. You're not speaking about technology. You actually are speaking about enterprise resiliency. And exactly as colleagues said, enterprise resiliency implies way more than just technology or IT or however you, you call it. So uh, to me, it's it's a question of maturity. And whenever I'm asked, so where would you like to position the the, the Caesar role? My, my question is, let, let us first look what, how mature is the organization and what are the objectives. If the organization is not so mature and the objective is just don't, well, if ransomware happens, make sure it's not too, too bad, then IT CI organization is, is quite fine. If organization wants to be really well prepared for an IPO or is Fortune 500 company, etc., then absolutely it should be on a, on a peer level because uh, those conflicts of interests they 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 can become brutal. So put it in perspective, see where you are, where you want to be, and based on this, you can even make a um, the, 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 the roadmap, a journey. So starting here, ending there. What is 
quite important is that there is there is a balance because if it's only CIO and, and the, to whom the Caesar is, is speaking, um, then there 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 are additional risks. If there is at least a dotted line into your board, into your risk function, into into whatever, so uh, another avenue that that can discuss Caesar can discuss risk or uh, quarterly board presentations where there is no CIO in the room and Caesar can speak freely. That, that definitely helps. So uh, dotted line outside of IT, very recommended irrespective of organization's maturity. The actual placement, the solid line, purely depends on maturity and company's aspirations. Thanks, Anzana. Skill comes in. Yeah, I agree with what's already been said. Um, just to add a couple of uh, things for, from my perspective, that I think that there has to be some work done on the CEO side as well. So when when CEO is looking uh, and then listening to these leading consultancy agencies uh, and companies, uh, they they need to understand that they they have to accept there will be one additional report under their hierarchy, and they, they want to reduce that. So they want to have four or five reports to manage their workload. But now with this more focus on cybersecurity, they need to appreciate that a, a guy with the title of CISO or something nicer will be reporting into them and they have to get closer to those topics. They cannot anymore channel that through the CFO line or the or the CIO line or the CRO line. So for me, that is one of the, the challenge areas I see in the industry from, from the business side. They need to have that appreciation. The, the other thing would be about the, it would be just echoing other, what, what's already been said that the, the CISO then needs to work and then come out of this information security uh, paradigm as well. So I think the part of the challenge sits in the, in the title of the role as well, is chief information security officer, and then you have a chief information officer. So, so that kind of pushes it in the direction of, yeah, it is, it is kind of related to IT. So probably the, the industry also need to do some work on redefining the acronyms of the role or the title of the role. It may not help much, but it does, get you into into having a conversation where it's not just an IT risk anymore, which, which the, the name implies. And then we, we go into definitions of information security. But then if you, if you look it up, the, the definition of information security and IT security is, is very much integrated. So I think if I sum it up, um, the, the, the organization needs to understand that, that they have to have an additional report at the board level, at the CEO level. And then we need to do some more work on defining and placing our profession appropriately in, in that chart as well. That's cool. Uber, anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I would say thank you guys for sharing the insight. I I, I tend to agree to the aspect that Shakil, I think you recently highlighted that it's also a business or organizational acceptance of that position in itself. It's not so old. Uh, the Caesar role has been prominently known in the last five, 10 years. I mean, yeah, there were Caesar roles before that, but not so prominent until our threat landscape also increased tremendously, right? So yeah, thanks thanks for also confirming and assuring the thoughts and the experiences that I've had. And uh, those conflicts at the top layer somehow have an implication on what we are doing operationally as well. So yeah, uh, getting a clarity and understanding and acceptance in the organization is probably the key aspects here too. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. And uh, so finally, we'll come to you, Alexander, for your question. Yes. Um, so I, I'd, I'd like to get, uh, colleagues, your perspective, your secret sources and know-how in how, how do you approach discussing risks with business colleagues 
and discussing risks with IT, with engineering, with, with geeks, with those who understand the underlying technological aspects. Uh, because business, as I saw many, many times and confirmed many, many times, they care less about the actual underpinning technology. They care much more about revenues, costs, risk, ESG score, what have you. Whereas for many engineers who are actually pushing the buttons and own configuration of a control or, or what have you, they care. They don't really care or often don't care about implications three four um levels away from there them for them it's uptime for them it's whatever packet loss or what have you or boot time that that is that is of a key how um what are your do you have any tips and tricks in discussing um pretty much same risk just with different audience yeah i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying different things and it seems to me the fundamental underlying problem is that um mathematically measuring cybersecurity risk is an unsolved problem in computer science like i've spoken to uh underwriters who measure uh hurricane risk if you want to measure the risk uh, and ensure the loss of your home in South Florida being destroyed by a hurricane, there's 150 years of meteorological data. You can crunch the numbers. You can give a very precise percentage. You know, there is a 4% chance in any given year your house will be completely destroyed. I'm making that number up, but there is a number that somebody who knows this can tell you. It's a measurable risk. The statistical risk of your house burning down, like you, you can you can measure this risk, you can do underwriting, you can do insurance. Now, how do you measure cybersecurity risk? Show me the uh, show me the underwriting data. Show me the data that we're going to use to measure risk. And how are we going to do that? Uh, we're, we're not going to use data from ten years ago. That that data is not very useful. And in five years, the data from now is worthless. So we're in a situation where, where the actual measurement of risk, um, and there, because ultimately we're insurance, we are insurers. Like my job is insurance. Security spend is insurance to manage risk. Like you know, my company can't get insurance because we're in cryptocurrency. So quite literally, I am the only insurance policy my company has. Internal spend on security is the only insurance policy we have. So I have to find fuzzy ways to roughly kind of sort of measure risk because the next question is what is the right amount of, of spend you, do, you don't want to overspend on security you don't want to underspend on security you don't want to spend money on things that don't work now is my security is my mdr provider reducing my risk again how do you measure that it's kind of hard well, they haven't sent me any live samples of actual intrusions in the last six months. Does that mean there haven't been any or they just couldn't find any? So again, we're back to a point where I, I can't measure risk and I have to almost like in an artistic kind of way, kind of sort of guess what the right spend is. So when communicating this, which is the, the real question being asked is, you know, what do executives and what does the business care about? The business cares about money. The purpose of the business is a shared enterprise because we all want to make some money. That's why we work together, so we can all make some money together. I got stock options. You know, everybody does in my company. We all want the company to succeed. So if such an event happens, 
at a, you know, I mean, we can keep using this low, medium, high critical nonsense because there's still nothing, anything better. But there is a medium risk of a $20 million financial loss in the next 12 months. I mean, that's really kind of hand wavy, but it's better than nothing. How much money would you spend to prevent a 20% chance of a medium risk event that causes a $20 million loss? $500,000? $200,000? I don't know. But this is, the, this is the only entryway that I can think of to talk to business owners, because at the end of the day, it's about money. How much money do you want to spend to not lose money? Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 are, we are trying to 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 solve this, and by by solving, we are trying to make may make movement in that direction. So one of the way we we have felt that we kind of resonated with the business is to convert the conversation, like I said before, towards enterprise risk. So when we talk about say crown jewels, we are now challenging the business to tell us what is the crown jewel for them, not from the IT perspective. And the funny thing is that the conversation started from when we asked them during the, the strategy phase of, 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 of this year that what is the risk appetite? And then the, the business and especially, yeah, without naming the, the specific designation, they looked towards us and they said, we expect you to define that. And, and the conversation now is leading back to guys, it needs to come from you. It needs to come from the enterprise. So, so going to the crown juice, what, what, what you need to protect from the business side. And it comes down to money eventually. So, Working in Europe, it kind of part of the answer lies into the fines that are being uh, threatened upon organizations by all these regulatory authorities. So you have a tangible number. So if it is up to 4% of the revenue, you can say, okay, you made X amount of money last year. If there is a breach of X number of records, you have to pay up to this much money. So, so the conversation kind of goes into that financial side. Reputation, we still can't figure out how to have a tangible calculation on the reputation side. The operation losses, we, we have kind of tried to put a number and based on, on what we went through last year, maybe it is a slightly, unfortunately, a slightly easier position to put a number on there. So, so using those levers, we, we feel that the, the conversation is becoming more risk-oriented, but then still it is driven by fear, which I don't personally agree with. It should be, it should be driven by the, the concept of safeguarding. Uh, we are kind of gaining some success into these topics based on the fear of what happened and then the pain that the organization already went through. So maybe that is not the right answer to, to this question, um, Alexander, that, that you need to have a breach to, to shift the conversations to, uh, towards that topic, right? Uh, but I think without having a breach, what we can do then is to surface the work and the effort and, and the breaches that we have avoided. So we, we can say that, okay, we, we were having a similar breach kind of behavior going on, but we restricted the blast radius. And then that then quantifies into, by doing that, we were able to not have any disruption to the business that the plants kept on working. And then there, there were no recovery costs and there were no insurance costs to that matter. So it's, it's kind of a fuzzy um, thinking pattern that we are going through right now, uh, but, but we, we feel that at least in our organization, the conversations are heading into, into that direction based on the experience that we had. So thanks, Gil. Uh, Linus, we'll come to you. 
Thanks, and again, I envy Jens for um, having such easy-to-reach customers or colleagues that are motivated by money, and you found a way to um, to find their weak spot and get them into the discussion. And certainly, that's my experience in financial services industry as well. Um, Alex, my understanding is you also have a lot of production blue-collar workers, and my experience with that is they're not really motivated or not not always by by making money, but actually working safety is super high uh, high level. There should be no accidents because accidents in a production facility may lead really to human um, may cost human lives. So that's sometimes much more important than than actually keep the facility running. And um, but. I think the approach is the same to find out what people are motivated by as a professional in their work and try to connect. I know it sounds easier than it is the security requirements or things you want to do to what's what motivates them. So if you if you know um, how to combine being more secure in their OT world or IT world leads to less outages of the factory or endangering human lives. Um, they might be listen or inclined to listen more or if they're motivated by money. Um, and, and that's also something that always works. And I think where security can have an awesome impact if there is a savings program. And I mean, now we are in somewhat of a recession and you can approach your business and tell them, hey, let's assess your business risk. And then let's look at the IT controls or technical controls we have actually um, employed and that actually cost a lot of money to you. I mean, it's only internally um, charged by IT maybe, but why do you do end-to-end -end encryption on data that is actually classified as, as public? Yeah? So maybe you don't need that super high-level security solution. I mean, more security is always better, right? But if there is no risk, so why pay for licenses or for tooling that is actually not needed? And um, that's something um, that I found, at least on the business side or, or with senior management, is is always a good good door opener to discuss cost and and risk and actually avoid this question. I expect you to define this for me because then um, you're somewhat an ally, helping them um, managing their cost better. And um, of course. And there are some risks that cannot be accepted that we, at least from our end, we always like GDPR non-compliance and things like that, where we always say, this is not up for negotiation. We do this yes or yes. Yeah? Um, but the rest maybe is negotiable based on risk. And um, and you beat two birds with one stone, if that's the saying, um, having the risk assessment of the business unit and already um, an appropriate matching to IT controls or might be even OT or physical security controls. So fantastic. Uh, we'll come to you last. Sure, I'll keep it short uh, again because most of it is already said. I think the key aspect in talking with business on grasping the risk side of things is downtime. I have seen this downtime word being used very smartly and very usefully in many conversations, which gets the business on board and think from your perspective when you try to highlight what could happen if there is an incident of natural calamity or anything of that sort. How do we entail cybersecurity? So yeah, I somehow tend to link it more on the BCM side of things and try to replicate those scenarios more fitting to that particular business. However, uh, Alex, that's the truth. It's also not an easy conversation. And most of the time, they feel it's us to define and we know that it's them to define. And that is also a senior leadership topic that I have seen in many conversations where they also struggle with it, kind of uh, making the organization understand 
what is meant by business talking about risk. Are we talking about IT risk? Are we talking about business risk? I think there's a lot of uh, different definitions and understanding in the organization. And my, my approach is always go with the BCM side. You might be able to get an onboarding faster. Yeah. If not realistically, but at least faster. Perfect. Colleagues, thank you very much. Very helpful. Is there any further points that I would like to raise? Okay. Good stuff, though. We shall leave it there. Now, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank all the panelists for providing their insights into the topic, and thank you for listening. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, feel free, free, sorry, please feel free to drop me a message. Finally, if you're hiring for any technical roles or looking for a new role, please feel, please feel free to uh, drop me a message here at Evolution. I'm Rob Wall. You can find me on LinkedIn or email me on robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thanks again to all my guests, and uh, thank you for listening. We hope you will join us next time.